Well, in a sense, that song says it all, doesn't it? I need you. I need you every hour. And that is certainly the leaning that we have upon the Lord. As we continue our series on forgiveness, today we are going to look at Jesus through the life of Joseph and in this matter of forgiveness. Now, there are two uh, most famous Josephs in the Bible. The one in the New Testament, of course, is the stepfather of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he was a wonderful, wonderful man, and it would be our honor to meet him in heaven someday. But along with that, there's the Old Testament Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob. He fathered two of the 12 tribes of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh, and along with that, he's perhaps best known to us as Joseph with the coat of many colors, or the technicolor coat. And uh, so today, Genesis in chapter 45 is where our sermon text is. And I'll begin reading in verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Now let me give you just a bit of background if you're not totally familiar with this story. Approximately 20 years earlier, Joseph's older brothers had sold him into slavery And he had been carried from the land of Canaan down to Egypt, where he had been away from his family for these 20-something years. You see, his older brothers detested him for two reasons. One, he was daddy's favorite. And daddy had emphasized that by giving him that special coat of many colors. And so there was this, uh, this brotherly hatred, if you will, instead of love. Secondly, Joseph had had dreams that later would be understood as being from God. But in these dreams, he sees his dad and his mom and his brothers all bowing down to him as though he would be their ruler. And they really hated that idea of bowing down to their younger brother. Why was he telling us these dreams? So based on that, They have an opportunity to get rid of him. They're going to kill him at first. But then some of them, cooler heads prevail, say, no, let's sell him. So they sell him into Egypt. Along with that, they take that coat of many colors. They soak it in animal blood, tear it up, so it looks like he was attacked by a wild animal and killed. And they carry that back to their father. So for about 20 years, Joseph's not seen any of his family. For 20 years, his father thinks he's dead. For 20 years, these brothers live with this on their conscience. A famine comes. They go down to Egypt where there's still food. And they encounter Joseph, who now, by God's grace, has become the number two ruler in Egypt. And he's overseeing all the food supplies. They don't know it's Joseph, but Joseph knows it's them. And there's a background of about three chapters before this where they are interacting with Joseph, not knowing it's him, but he's knowing it's them. And finally, this revelation comes, and that's where we are. So we continue to pick it up now in verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now... 
Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You could live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who, are, and all who belong to you will become destitute. Now he's talking to the brothers again. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. The reason that Benjamin is highlighted is because Jacob had four wives. Joseph and Benjamin were from the same mother, Rachel, and they were the two youngest. And so that's why there's such a connection between Benjamin and Joseph here. The Lord Jesus Christ was teaching one day in what we have as Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40. And he talks about his death, burial, and resurrection. And he says in Matthew 12 and verse 40, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, For three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, Jesus speaking of himself, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And there Jesus was using Jonah as an example or what we call a type of himself. And all through the Old Testament, we read of people like Moses and David, Jonah and Joseph whom we would call types of Christ. In other words, there are things in their lives that foreshadow or point toward the Lord Jesus. And Joseph, as Jonah and others, is a type of Christ. That's why sometimes in Bible study, you will hear talk of typology. That is a study of biblical people and biblical events in the Old Testament that foreshadow or point toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And Joseph is certainly an example of that. Harry Ironside was a wonderful Bible teacher. He's been with the Lord now for many years. But Brother Ironside did a a little sermon on the type that Joseph is of Jesus. And he pointed out some similarities. For example, they were both beloved of their father. Joseph has the coat of many colors. Jesus, at his baptism and at his transfiguration, the heavenly Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Both of them had predictions of coming glory. Both of them sought their brothers. Both of them were rejected. Both of them were tempted. Both of them were ultimately uh, exalted. 
And so there are similarities. I found another list that made 20 comparisons between Joseph and Jesus. I found another of 99. So Joseph is a great type of Jesus. But in looking at our passage today, three things come to my mind. First of all, I love the fact that Joseph honored God and acknowledged God's presence even in the bad times. You see, even after he was sold as a slave, rejected by his brothers, even after he winds up in Egypt and he gets falsely accused and lied about and winds up in prison, even after in prison interpreting dreams for two of Pharaoh's officials and instead of remembering him and acknowledging what he did, they forgot about him. And then God finally brings him out and blesses him and gives him the rulership of Egypt through all those tough times. Joseph kept his trust in the presence of God in his life. And he acknowledges that. You see, four different times he says in this passage, it was God. It was God. Even in the bad times, it was God. He acknowledges God's presence. Now, I thought when Doug mentioned a moment ago that the weather was an answer to prayer, I thought he was referring to the Super Bowl. And having grown up in Denver, Colorado, you know I'm for the Seahawks. No, I'm kidding. I'm really a Broncos fan. In fact, Gunther said, brother, where's your Bronco outfit? It was all I could do, people, to not wear my Broncos jersey today. But I didn't want to detract from the sermon. And uh, so, yes, I'm a football fan and I'm a Broncos fan. I'm a Steelers fan, too. I don't want any stoning after the service, okay? But, uh, but, but anyway, you know, I, I, have you ever noticed in a football game after somebody makes a great play or scores a touchdown, how they, you know, they point up to God or they, you know, kneel down or they give the sign of the cross? I'm waiting for just one player to fumble or throw an interception. (laughs) Acknowledging God even in the bad times. Now, I know, in a sense, they're giving God the credit for the good thing that happened. But you see, what we learn here is God even uses the bad things. His presence is there all the time. Now, let's be honest this morning. Sometimes when things are going really well, isn't it easy to praise God? But then when things get a little tough or a little out of kilter or don't go our way or some disappointment comes we didn't expect or don't think we deserve, do you find that there can be a tendency to get a little upset with God? Or to say, why did you let this happen? I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to love you. I'm your kid. This shouldn't happen. But Joseph has a great testimony here of acknowledging the presence of God even in the tough times. Our Lord Jesus on the cross said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Even though he had earlier acknowledged, God had forsaken him. But there was a purpose and that purpose was our salvation as well as the Father's will. Do you see the presence of God in the bad times? Psalm 116, verse 10. David said, I trusted in the Lord even when I said, I am greatly afflicted. 
You talk about a great example. Job is a great example. Job 1 verse 21, after learning that all ten of his children had died as well as his wealth had dissipated. In fact, my dad just called me this week. He knows the pastor in the tiny town where those nine children were burned up in that fire. And he said, in talking to the pastor, he said, it's a heartbreak. He said, son, I can't remember ever knowing of somebody that lost more kids at one time than Job, except for this man there in in Kentucky. And here, Job loses 10 kids at one time, but he bows in worship. And he said, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We often sing that in part of our song worship here at Barclay, is the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Do we understand what we're saying? That we're worshiping God, even when the bad times are there. We're acknowledging his presence. Job goes on when his wife is, is, is upset about it. Why are you worshiping? Why don't you just curse God? Get it over with. Die. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 10, Shall we not only accept, shall we just accept good from God's hand and, and not trouble? I mean, after all, he is God. We're but the creature. And then later he says in Job 13 and verse 15, Even if he slays me, yet will I hope. In him. You come to the New Testament, Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are out there preaching the gospel. Paul and Silas are out there winning people to Christ. Paul and Silas are out there casting out demons. Saul, Paul, and Silas are out there building the Philippian church. And you know what happens? They didn't get recognized in a service. They didn't get some great newsletter, look what we're doing for God. No, they got beat up and they got thrown in jail. And the Bible amazingly says in Acts 16, and at midnight, Paul and Silas, having been beaten, having been wrongly accused, and falsely imprisoned, they're innocent. But you know what? They're praising God. They're singing. They're praying. And the Bible says God blew that place apart with an earthquake, saved the Philippian jailer, and on and on. But the point is, they acknowledge the presence of God even in the bad times. You know, when I came to Hebron Presbyterian Church, I wasn't real familiar with with what we call the, the, the confessions of faith. And when officers are installed and ordained in our church, uh, this book is a book of uh, the uh, confessions that believers in studying the Bible have put together. We call them reliable expositions of the Scripture. And they're not the Bible. I understand that. But they're helpful tools in our understanding of the Bible. And I love this about God in the bad times. And when we feel mistreated or we've made mistakes... Yet God is there. Listen to what St. Augustine says. What happens contrary to his will occurs. It is a wonderful, or it, it occurs in a wonderful and ineffable way, not apart from his will. For it would not happen if he did not allow it. And yet he does not allow it unwillingly, but willingly. But he who is good would not permit evil to be done unless being omnipotent, all-powerful, he could bring good out of evil. 
So you see, we as believers acknowledge and worship and trust our God even in the bad times. And Joseph is saying to Jacob all through the years where I was betrayed, I was imprisoned, I was apart from my family, I was alone here in Egypt, humanly speaking, God was here, God was with me, God was working. And so all that you look at is bad, brothers. God has worked it to good. He acknowledges the presence of God even in the bad times. Secondly, he acknowledges the power of God and the purpose of God in being able to take the bad and turn it to the good. Now, in Genesis 45, um, you know what, I'm going to turn just to read this because it's easier. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother. Uh, nope, uh, okay. And he says, yes. And then he says, the one you sold in Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. In other words, what they meant for evil, God turned into good. They thought they were getting rid of Joseph. It was founded on hatred and bitterness and destructive attitudes. But God took it and moved him down into Egypt that he might become the ruler and feed the family of Jacob and so that the chosen seed might survive and continue. You meant it for wrong, but God sent me ahead of you, even through your wicked deed, to save you. Now think of the times in the scripture where God took something bad and turned it into something good. For example, in Acts chapter 8, the Bible tells us the early church, our spiritual ancestors in Jerusalem just after Jesus ascended into heaven, where they're worshiping and serving, but there began to be a persecution. It was so severe that believers began to be scattered throughout the world. And the Bible says, though, as they were scattered, Acts 8 and verse 4, they were, went everywhere preaching the word. And you know what? That's fulfilling the command of Jesus. Because Jesus had said in his last great commission, he said, go into all the world. He didn't just say, stay in Jerusalem. He said, till the Holy Ghost comes on you. But after the word, go into all the world. But they were still in Jerusalem. But the persecution came back. But through the persecution, they're scattered everywhere, preaching the word, good. God's purpose accomplished from bad to good. Secondly, study sometime the little book of Philemon. It's just one chapter long, tucked in the middle of the New Testament. And it's a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to his Christian brother in the Lord, Philemon, who in that day and culture was as many a slave owner. And one of his slaves, Onesimus, had run away. He had encountered Paul after he had run away in the city of Rome. And there, whether he already knew Paul personally or not, I don't know. But Paul was able to lead him to faith in Christ. And because, again, of the culture of that day, he said, it's not legal for me to allow you to continue to escape. You are to return to your master. He said, take this letter with you. And here's what Paul writes to Philemon about the runaway slave Onesimus who's now come to Christ. He said, perhaps, in verse 15, he departed from you for a little while that you might have him back forever. 
In the culture of that day, runaway slave, bad. But through running away, he meets Paul and he's converted to Christ. And now he and Philemon and Paul will spend eternity in heaven and will see them there good. God turning the bad into good. And then Doug read for us this morning, Mark 14. Jesus is sitting at a table. We call it the Last Supper. And he's sharing their bread and wine with his disciples. And he basically says, one of you is going to betray me. And then he goes on to say, the Son of Man will go as it is written of him. It is God's purpose that Christ be betrayed, that he might die for God's glory and our salvation. But he said, woe to the man who does it. You see, it was evil for Judas to betray innocent blood about the Savior. But God took what was evil and turned it into good. The death of Christ. And the Bible says he, 1 Corinthians 15, died for our sins. And so brothers and sisters, part of our trust in the power and purpose of our God is even amazingly in our mistakes and in the mistreatments that come, and even things that seemingly are no one's fault, but they're bad, we realize that our God is able ultimately to take it and make it good. In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. I've told you before about the homemade biscuits that my grandma used to make. And my dad said as a boy... And there was some flour. That's not any good by itself. You don't see folks sitting around just munching on flour. And he said bacon grease. You don't see anybody dipping in a big old, man, I love this grease. You see? And, and, and some, you know, different items like that. The flour and the salt and the baking soda and the baking uh, grease and so on. But he said when you got it all together and it came out in the form of that homemade biscuit. He said, man, it was so good. If you got it on your forehead, your tongue would slap your brains out trying to get it. None of those things in themselves are good. But our God is able to take even the bad and make it good. And the Lord Jesus said, it's not good that Judas betrays me. But it's good. Because it's written to be that way. It's the Father's will. It's for the Father's glory. And it'll ultimately be the shedding of my blood and the breaking of my body to save your souls. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad for a God? bad and turn it into good and then finally i see in this matter of forgiveness the the process or i might call it a process of forgiveness and and really that's in genesis 45 and 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 verse 1 here and and the bible is saying here that that joseph finally has to just reveal himself reveal himself to his brothers uh look at verse 1 it says then joseph could no longer control himself and he cried out, and then he made himself known to his brothers. But you have to appreciate the fact there are three chapters of background where he is interacting with these brothers before he ever reveals himself. And you know, I wondered about that for this reason. Sometimes when we talk about forgiveness, we say, well, now forgiveness is something that's immediate. 
And so why didn't Joseph immediately, the first time he encountered his brothers, say, guys, it's me, Joseph. Everything's forgiven. God meant it for good. Don't worry about it. Let's get on with it. But no. If you study it, you find that before Joseph ever reveals himself to his brothers, he makes them make two trips back to Canaan. He puts money back in their bags that they had paid for the grain to create consternation. They were in prison for three days. He keeps one brother for Simeon in prison for a long time while the brothers are gone. He puts pressure on them to bring the youngest brother back whose name is Benjamin, even though that will cause his father consternation and heartache. And you say, why in the world would Joseph put them through all that if he's forgiving? Well, as I studied Bible teachers, I think we, I think that they basically came to the conclusion with which I would have to agree. Joseph was forgiving. But there was a process of restitution and restoration. You see, first of all, Joseph wanted to really prove, were they sorry for what they had done? And when they first talked to Joseph and he says, tell me about your family. The Bible says, they said, well, we have a brother who's gone. <laughs> and it's only after they spend three days in prison, they start talking about, boy, you know what? Now we remember our brother whose anguish we caused. And when he was crying out to us in the pit, guys, please don't sell me. Don't send me away. I'll do anything. Let me go back to my dad, please. They ignored his cries and sold him. They said, yeah, we remember. Was it right? And then a little bit later, the first time they came down, Benjamin wasn't with them. Because now he had become the father's favorite because Joseph is considered dead. And it's the youngest, it's the baby of the family. And Jacob had first said, you will never take Benjamin to Egypt. I can't afford to lose him. But finally, because the famine is so great, and Joseph had said after one trip, he said, you won't see my face again. You won't get any more food unless I see this fellow Benjamin. And so finally they bring Benjamin back down. When they start back, Joseph has his steward place his silver cup in Benjamin's bag of food. When they get a little way down the road, the steward comes riding up and says, hey, somebody stole my master's cup. They said, well, whoever it is, you can kill him. Because they said, nobody stole all these brothers. All of a sudden, they open up the bag. There it is in, or there, there it is in Benjamin's bag, the cup. And you see, it's perhaps that Joseph was tested because the first time around, as his father's favorite, the brother said, sell him! Get rid of him! Will they do that to Benjamin too? Well, see you, Benjamin. Tough luck. No, no. They all get back on their animals. They all come back. And Judah even says, look, I'll be your slave instead of Benjamin. They stood by their brother. You see, brothers and sisters, as I'm beginning to try to learn more about forgiveness, I don't want to be confused about it. I believe that Joseph was forgiving from the start. But there was a period of perhaps recognition on their part, that he was helping them to have. You know, it's interesting as I've studied forgiveness in the Bible, even though God's forgiveness is immediate, there are still sometimes consequences. Or there are still times, periods of restoration that must take place. You see, 
David was approached by the prophet Nathan after committing adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband Uriah killed to cover up her pregnancy. And Nathan comes and he rebukes David about it through a story. And David, realizing his sin, says, I have sinned. And Nathan says in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13, God has forgiven you. But the little one born to you in Bathsheba will pass away. God was forgiving. David's sin had been put away. But there were some consequences yet to be experienced. You know, I, when I was a younger preacher, and still in, in many ways now, you know, um, I remember I went to a home in uh, California and, uh, and I was preaching out there and, uh, and that, this family had me to, to lunch and I could tell the man was a very spiritual man and <laughs> he said to me during the lunch hour, he said, brother, he said, tell me, what minister do you want to really emulate? What minister stirs you? Kind of a model for you. And man, I'm sitting there trying to hope I'm giving the right answer. You know? <laughs> and I said, well, I'll be honest with you. I said, I love Jimmy Swagger. <laughs> I said, I get up every Sunday morning when I'm at my own church. And I said, man, I polish my shoes and watch Jimmy Swagger. He fires me up. <laughs> and uh, many of you know that later on, Brother Jimmy uh, had a moral lapse in his life. And, you know, I always am saddened by the fact when he was part of the Assemblies of God. And, and the Assemblies said, Jimmy... They said, because of this moral lapse, we're going to ask you to take a year off and, and not preach for that year. And Brother Jimmy said, no, I, I can't do it for more than three months. Otherwise, the ministry will fail. And only God knows his heart and God knows that ministry. And, but, you know, I, I've often thought maybe it would have been best to take the admonition and the discipline of the church. Not that they weren't forgiving, but there was to be an appropriate period of, of, of restitution and restoration and reconciliation. You say, well, Tim, I don't see Jesus in that part of Joseph. Really? Hmm. I found it rather interesting as I'm studying Jesus. And when Jesus is on trial and Jesus is being tortured, one of his beloved, a fellow named Peter, ever hear of him? Peter denies that he knows Jesus three times, even to the point of cursing. You think Jesus forgave Peter? Absolutely. But there comes a point when after Jesus is resurrected, he and Peter and some other disciples are sitting around a campfire on the lakeshore having breakfast. And three times, Jesus said, Peter... Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Peter. And the Bible says the third time Jesus asked him that, Peter was hurt. It was painful. He said, Lord, you know I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. And you see, Jesus had forgiven Peter. But there was that period of reinstatement, if you will, where Jesus, again, is putting him in the position of a pastor, a shepherd, an elder, a leader. Three denials, three statements of restoration. And the conclusion that came to my heart from both Joseph and Jesus is this, about forgiveness. 
True forgiveness, even in a process, is never about revenge. It is always, ultimately, about restoration. There are things that go on between us and others, and we may forgive right away, but we may not be able to trust again right away or allow everything to be just as it was right away. And we might wrestle, am I truly forgiving? Or someone who's not immediately given all the privileges from before, have I truly been forgiven? God's forgiveness is immediate. But even the Savior brought to Peter a period of restoration. And so, brothers and sisters, again I remind us, True forgiveness, even if there's a process, is never about revenge. It is always about restoration. Amen.